Welcome to the month end of CPG Community Chat. The month end will provide emerging CPG brands real life knowledge into the accounting, finance, and operational worlds. Our guests will be key stakeholders from those same brands as well as other key contributors to the industry. Welcome. It's episode 31 of the Month Ed Podcast. Today, I have CEO and co-founder of Hemper, Brian Gerber, on the chat. How are you doing today, Brian? Good, Brad. Thank you so much for having me today. Super excited to chat. Yeah, uh, me too. Really excited to chat about Hemper and, and Hara Supply, a couple of the businesses that you've founded and grown over the last several years, uh, specific to kind of accounting, finance, operational um, questions and comments. Um, but also the specific kind of niche you're in, in terms of uh, some of the issues that could have come up from a re- regulatory standpoint. So before we get uh, started in details, let's kind of step back, give us a background of, of who you are, where you come from, and then let's talk about what your businesses do, who you sell to, and, and kind of the phase you're at today, and then we'll get into some of the detailed questions. Cool. Yeah. So I started uh, Hemper uh, 2015 like a week after I graduated from university, uh, I studied accounting and information systems at GW. Uh, the original concept for Hemper was a direct-to-consumer subscription box for basically stoner paraphernalia products. And it was a discovery outlet. As most people know, this is a very discreet industry. Nobody's really raising their hand saying, hi, I'm a consumption you know, person. Uh, and so when I first launched, it was really just about convenience. And at the time, Amazon wasn't really touching this category. So you couldn't really buy this stuff off, uh, online unless it was like a, you know, online head shop or something, but the experiences were kind of terrible. And I was really just looking for kind of my best friend to tell me all the latest, greatest, cool stuff on a monthly basis. And that yeah. was the hamper box. And so it became, uh, kind of took the industry by storm. Uh, obviously, 2015 was a huge subscription economy year with, you know, Birchbox and FabFitFun and everyone raising, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And, you know, we really got into this niche uh, pretty early on on the subscription side. And really what uh, catapulted the business originally was actually like celebrity curated uh, boxes. So Smoke Like Snoop Dogg for a month was the concept originally, which we came up with six months into the business. And that went from like 300 subscribers in the fourth month to 2,000 subscribers in you know the sixth month. And then we started just working with larger influencers and celebrities. And we worked with like uh, Foster Domus, Rico Nasty, Cypress Hill, uh, Ty Dolla Sign, so on and so forth. And we really drove home connecting with you know your favorite artist or your favorite professional skater or whoever it might be in a totally different way. And that's uh, how we kind of got to this point today. And then we sort of transitioned into um, more of theme-based boxes, you know, uh, UFO theme, rubber ducky theme, Chinese takeout theme. And actually people started taking to the themes more than the celebrities. Because if you don't like Snoop Dogg, you're not buying his box, right? But everyone loves UFO conspiracies. So it, it was a quick transition for us. And then... I really focused early on, how are we gonna keep this fresh? How are we gonna keep the subscribers coming back? And what I really identified was product development. And I think that's really where like FabFitFun destroy the other beauty boxes where they came out with their own products and brands and then released that through the subscription box. 
And then they took those products and brands that were really popular, went to Nordstrom's, Bloomingdale's, started selling them mass market distro and retail. And that's exactly the model that we emulated. And so what we do today is we develop gadgets. We release them through our Trojan horse marketing outlet, which is the subscription box. We get feedback from thousands of customers overnight. We take that data and we go to our distribution and retail partners and say, hey, look, we just launched this. We sold 30,000 a month. The reviews are raving. Push this into your distribution network. So it was one of the first data-driven approaches to this industry, uh, the ancillary part, where really before it was like, hi, I had a high idea one day, please sell my product, right? I, th I think it's cool, you know, and I knew that wasn't going to get this market to kind of move forward with us. It was really like all of the data we were able to collect, all the customer, the social proof, you know, we've got over 800,000 followers on social media today. And so that was really uh, the driving force behind Hemper, which was just developing really cool products, driving real value and giving customers exactly what they're looking for before they even know they need it. That's awesome. Um, super cool. Built a huge community. Use them as your uh, test market and then yep. actually launch your own products into there and, and scale and grow from there. That's awesome. Uh, yep. And that's been around since 2015. Um, yeah. Very so that cool. Was the first uh, three years of the company. And then uh, we started actually getting this kind of reputation for being like really scrappy at manufacturing stuff. And a lot of the other packaging companies and a lot of our customers' business models have changed over the years as the industry has kind of matured. So a lot of the packaging companies were selling paraphernalia products to dispensaries uh, when it was direct to dispensary model, right? Where they were filling pre-rolls at the dispensary counter in California, and it really wasn't um, really regulated in that sense. And so we started manufacturing products for a lot of these packaging companies and so we got this really good reputation of just being able to deliver on everything they needed. And then we got this interesting opportunity in this pre-roll cone segment where there's always been this massive shortage because every pre-roll cone in the industry, which I can show you right here, looks very similar to like something like this. Yeah. And basically it's, they're all handmade. So that is the bottleneck, right? And there's a labor arbitrage where there's really only two countries you can do this in, which is Indonesia and India at this point. There's some in Dominican Republic, but uh, that's going to go away soon. So we basically said, okay, you know, for however many dollars of outstanding inventory that you need us to make up in terms of that gap, we'll go out and figure it out. So it took us about six months to figure out the lay of the land and really what you had uh, in the market already was really just like sweatshop models, to be honest, right? And not only did we want to solve the supply shortage, but we wanted to really do it on a social conscious basis where, you know, we were setting up proper facilities with good manufacturing practices, real certifications, you know, clean rooms, you know, um, I mentioned this the other day on another interview, uh, you know, we get doctors uh, visits appointments twice a year for all of our employees. Uh, things like that, right? And so it took us about six months. We went back to our customers and said, hey, here's our cones. What do you guys think? They said, this is awesome. How many can you make? We said, as many as you need. Walked out of that meeting with a half a million dollar purchase order and kind of the rest is history. We, uh, in the last four to five years, we've now become the largest manufacturer in the world 
for cones and other combustible products. We produce about a hundred million a month for the market's largest entities, your MSOs, your Jeters, your Stizzies of the world. And we went in more of a solutions partner approach, not a one size fits all, which is what was already there. And really mm -hmm. tell me the dream, we'll go figure it out for you as opposed to a one size fits all model. And we've been able to garner over 30% of the market in a short amount of years. Uh, and our scale is insane compared to our competitors, our quality and our lead times are unmatched. And so that's the other part of uh, the business that's kind of complementary just on the B2B side. So we have this very interesting scope, this big CPG brand on this direct to consumer side of the company. And then we have this really big B2B manufacturing arm. Uh, and so to give you kind of a Scale, we're at now 14 manufacturing sites in New Delhi, India, with about 4,000 employees. Wow! Congrats. Um, that is that is that is quite the uh, the enterprise that you're building here. Um, and very interesting model of again building a community, getting customers, getting feedback, and then you know providing them products. But then also, what is your problem? Let's try to fix yeah. it. Versus this is what we're selling. Take it or leave it. I think that whole solutions kind of mindset of, 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 hey, you're looking for this. We'll see if we can figure that out. So several kind of questions that come into brain from kind of this whole kind of operational stand, standpoint. Number one is what, uh, I guess, what were some mistakes you got, you made operationally in relation to scaling too quick or not? Um, what were some uh, issues you came in like specifically with dealing with overseas? Because I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of issues here, right? International uh, situations you talk about, and again, we'll get into the whole kind of regulation standpoint on the industry, but kind of operationally, what were a couple of, uh, I guess, maybe mistakes you made, but then also maybe a couple of good decisions you made kind of as you scaled your business from 2015 and Hemper to Hara, et cetera. Yeah, totally. So really early on, I had this vision or dream, call it, that we were going to be the only smoking accessory subscription box that was going to make its glass in the United States. And I said, we're going to figure this out. It's going to be awesome. We're going to be the only differentiator. Nobody's going to be able to compete against us. And so I, in the process of fulfilling that vision, I almost, I, I chose the wrong manufacturer here domestically. They ended up, unfortunately, using all of our money to fund other people's orders. And we had a situation where we almost had to go out of business because all of our cash was tied up with this manufacturer. And on basically day of delivery, it was uh, April, our April box where we were doing collaboration with Flostradamus and they were actually presenting the box at their concert at Red Rocks in Colorado. And we were supposed to fly there and bring the products and do this whole thing. And I get a call on day of delivery saying 600 pieces out of 6,000 show up. And obviously we had a heart attack, but more or less, you know, we figured it out, pivoted. Um, I was able to get a Amex credit card somehow very easily and throw another 40 grand on it in a day. We were able to buy glass from another supplier. And we actually eight weeks later ended up getting that money reversed uh, from our Chase Bank due to the clauses in a manufacturing arrangement via bank transfer. And so we actually got that money back. And that kind of showed me that you can't make anything in the United States. It's really unfortunate and you can't scale here. 
And unfortunately, in my industry, a lot of people overpromise and underdeliver. And I think that's one of the main reasons why we've been so successful is we're one of the few people in this industry that do what we say and say what we do. And it's so rare. And, and once people get one ounce of taste of it, they just want to keep coming back and giving us more business. Yes. Um, definitely kind of coming from, um, you know, our background is typically is like, you know, accountant financing, um, uh, from that space. Uh, a lot of our last five years, the clients that do in the CPG world that have anything related to hemp, anything related to CBD, you know, clearly getting shut down by banks, credit cards, the exact story you're talking about with Amex. Um, yeah. So it's really hard and chaotic to even run a business um, in, in the U.S. because of federal rules and the specific state rules and all this type of stuff that's just a pain in the butt. So when you kind of went from, you know, domestically to move to internationally, kind of how did that process work in terms of, you know, you saying hey, like there was two countries that you can really scale and grow in. Like, how did you identify that? And what does that mean? Does it mean like they have unlimited kind of, or unlimited kind of, you have agency to do what you want there or like, you know, minimal regulations kind of get more background on that. Yeah, so, and there was a major, just side note, payment processing massacre, I call it, during 2015 to 2018, where we got shut down left and right companies promising us the world, holding on to six figures in funds for over a year, all types of crazy stuff. So I can get into any of that if you'd like, but on oh, the- yeah, we had a, we had a couple of clients at that time that literally had to put up new domains like socksandshoes.com, things like that, of just to keep getting new uh, applications yeah. going on to the, the, the world yeah. when, when that existed 2015 the, to 2018 timeframe. Yeah. Unfortunately, one of the, I guess the founders of ease, the delivery service, ended up, I think, going to jail recently for uh, payment processing fraud, basically opening yeah. up gel corps and things like that. But oh, man. Uh, yeah, so into the manufacturing side. So RJ, uh, one of the partners uh, is Indian and he uh, wasn't born in India, but has a lot of ties there. And so we were able to actually kind of go over there and RJ's got a lot of political connections and a lot of, you know, he had family businesses over there. And so we were able to really navigate it because a lot of his family members have been able to scale manufacturing operations uh, like this prior at, in more of the textile world. And so in terms of, you know, when we went over there, what happened, uh, you know, basically with the labor prices, you know, being much more advantageous than here in the States, a lot of the products that we make uh, that are labor intensive are handmade, right? So most of the glass is all handmade at this point, right? There's very little molding. There's very little, there's more sophistication you'll find in China, Vietnam, Korea, Japan. You're not going to find that sophistication in India. And so we've basically went from ground level of like, what are we even making here to like, full-fledged manufacturing facilities, right? And so RJ, to be honest, to give him credit, you know, has been over there since midway through 2018, uh, really, you know, 100 hour plus work weeks, you know, finding the right team members, hiring the right labor staff, figuring out all the legalities, you know, signing leases, putting up the facilities, training people. So credit to RJ, you know, who's really, sacrificed a lot being over there, putting everything together and making sure that 
you know, what I need over here, I can get and I can go sell it. And it's a really great kind of symbiotic relationship uh, where RJ manages a lot of the production and manufacturing and I'm out there, new biz, sell, sales, all of that. So it's very complimentary uh, to everything, but yeah, no, it, it was definitely Rocket's points, you know, especially during COVID supply chain was insane. Um, but yeah, no, it was um, not as, I mean, once again, I wasn't there on the ground, so I'm sure I'm, I'm lowering how difficult it was for RJ to pull this off, <laughs> but you know, it, we were able to do it and um, without minimal, you know, uh, interruption our business, and we were able to scale pretty quickly uh, to where we are today. So then, <clears throat> from an aspect of like uh, managing inventory, you know, uh, lead times, uh, etc. Like, what what tools, what systems, what reports, you know, what what do you yeah. do? Just kind of from that, even from I guarantee, like to your point, five years ago is different than COVID three years ago, and even now. But just kind of walk us through kind of your kind of mindset or your workflow with that. Yeah, totally. So uh, we use, so all of our e-com stuff is on Shopify. Uh, our warehouse management system uh, we use is fulfill.io. Uh, our accounting software right now is we actually are on QuickBooks Online still, even though we do have you know a nine-figure enterprise. Uh, we've been looking recently into switching, but you know how it is. Uh, sometimes it, the shiny new object looks great, but it's not always. So uh, in terms of reporting and things like that, we actually built out uh, Google Studio data where uh, we actually have like a full reporting system. So I can literally click, okay, I wanna know this customer, all their invoices, where their order is in terms of completion date, when is it gonna ship? So we've basically is good data in, good reporting coming out, right? And we've realized that, you know, a long time ago that, you know, you, if you have shit data, you're never gonna figure out your business. So yes. I think that's really important is like, you know, centralizing who is inputting this data, understanding how it's being spit it back out to people who are reading it. And so for us at this point, we now have a ton of different reports in terms of, you know, what's in production, when is it gonna be finished in terms of inventory. Um, once we're selling, uh, once we have, uh, we have stop gaps. So like once we get to a certain level, India automatically gets a PO generated to them, things like that, where it's more automated and we don't really need to get back involved so much on those kinds of things. Uh, but that that's pretty much kind of the landscape in terms of our tech stack, our warehouse tools, our inventory management. Uh, reporting wise, you know, we, on the sales side, uh, you know, we do a lot of like velocity retention uh, reports, um, kind of you name it, we've gone into it. Cool, so it sounds like you've kind of created your own kind of workflow automation inventory tool that definitely works for you works for you which is great and that's kind of uh you know like quickbooks online clearly you can grow and scale with that as much as possible depending on how much data is in there whether it's summary data individual data things like that i tell yeah. you know there's a lot of folks that are growing uh hey i'm five million in revenue do i need to move to that suite i'm like no 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 like okay if you want to start spending a ton of money reworking everything spending a ton of money on consultants it's it's a it's a completely different way of working so if, if you want to move in that direction that's fine but you know with your kind of illustration it doesn't always need to be that case you can kind of build some tools internally do what works for you execute enhance kind of continue to automate and move on from there so that's awesome on that aspect um from an aspect of on the kind of the finance kind of money side of things right again 
you're dealing with accessories, you know, so it's like indirect. Um, you already told us the story about the, you know, the Amex card, but kind of how did you, outside of that aspect, just two questions. Number one is like, how did you tackle the money raising, fundraising aspect? Clearly it was a very high risk industry, but a lot of people would wanted to get in the last five, six years, right? Um, so number one, how did you tackle that? Like, how did that go? Um, and then second thing, I'll, I just want to kind of get an update on your end related to how these payment processes are working, how banking regulations are working these days versus what they were three, five, six, eight years ago. So number one, like, how did you kind of grow scale fundraise kind of within this space? Yeah, totally. So we bootstrapped for the first three years. So from 2015 to 2018, uh, we didn't pay ourselves, bootstrapped everything, put every dime back into the business. Uh, originally, um, we found a, so yeah, uh, raising funds as a very young entrepreneur. So I, I started the company when I was 24. So at 27, I was raising money and I did not realize this at the time, but you have the awesome opportunity at your fingertips and you're allowing people to come into your opportunity. And I think a lot of young entrepreneurs think they're kind of in this begging mode and it ends up becoming more of a turnoff to the investors because they think that you're in desperate need of this money as opposed to here's what I've done. This is the rocket ship I'm on. I need the fuel to get there. I want you involved because you can bring value. And I now know that now, but when I was first raising, you know, I went through nine months of negotiations with our uh, seed round uh, investors, uh, Greg Smith at uh, Evolution Corporate Advisors. And my partners were telling me, you're going to kill the deal. You're going to kill it. And I said, guys, like he's giving us these revenue marks we have to hit. And I don't know if we're going to hit them in that time frame. And one day I just said, you know what, guys, I'm going to call Greg and said, you know, Greg, I, I love you. You've been the first person and investor we've ever spoken with that just wants to, uh, you know, put fire, you know, fuel on our fire and just drive our vision forward, not change anything. But these revenue marks that we have to hit, I don't want to work under these stresses and I don't want my team to work under these stresses, but I guarantee you I'm going to blow them out of the water. And he said, you know, Brian, scrap it, take it out. We signed the deal two days later. And we raised a million dollars at roughly a $5 million valuation. And then nine months later, and for all you entrepreneurs out there, a million dollars goes very quickly, just FYI. So, <laughs> so nine months later, I call Greg again. I say, hey, Greg, you know, we're, 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 we got a couple hundred thousand bucks left. You know, we're going to need to go for a series A round. Here's all the, you know, um, you know, updates and our first seed round, he actually got me on a call with like a hundred different potential investors and 21 out of them came into the round. And so on the series A, he actually brought in another fund called Poseidon uh, and they're really big into cannabis and Emily and Morgan are great people. They're uh, partners. And uh, so we came, we brought them into our series A round, which we raised um, another 1.5 million at a $20 million valuation. And then uh, we thought we were going to go for our series B, but instead I called Greg and said, Hey, you know, I need 
$850,000 as a series B bridge convertible note. And I guarantee you we're going cash flow positive after this point. So this all happened within basically a year's time. We raised all this money. And so once we raised that 800 grand, the company went on a rocket ship after that. And so that we've raised today 3.25 million. We've done over 200 million in sales in eight years. Uh, and our investors are very happy with the possible returns that they are going to be receiving. Love it, man. Congrats on all that. Definitely, uh, you know, it's in any negotiation, right? It's leverage, it's power. It's like, you, you gotta uh, sell yourself. And it is, I mean, as a, you know, entrepreneur myself and doing this and even selling to customers or different thing, you, like if, if you're, don't show that confidence, you can tell when you're talking yeah. to someone. So I think yeah. it's like framing your mindset to that aspect. Um, and the convertible note was at uh, 75 million valuation. Awesome, dude. Definitely rocket ship. Um, so then last kind of question, then we'll get into the, our, our kind of summary questions here. So yeah, so like just the industry, like how is the industry changing just from, from a, like a regulation, you know, banking finance standpoint, you know, in 2023 versus 2015 and kind of the issues we were talking about earlier? Yeah, so when we first started, obviously we only had the subscription box and the e-com. So we were working with, first, it was kind of funny. So I, you know, unbeknownst to me, I set up a Shopify website and signed up on Stripe and started processing, you know, money. And uh, I think once we hit, uh, I think it was between fifty and a hundred thousand dollars. I guess something triggered, and you know, we went to the customer success department, and they, I get an email one day, like six months after we launched, and they said, "Hi, who, who are you guys?" <laughs> I said, hi, we're Hemper, you know, we're doing this. And they said, well, we, you know, you fall under our, you know, tobacco products and we're not going to be able to process any more payments for you. And I told them, I said, I pleaded with them. I said, please give me a 30 day grace period to keep processing and I will find a new processor. So they actually agreed to the 30 day grace period, which is unheard of. Most people just get shut off without an answer. And then the money's in the cloud somewhere. So I got the angel that day, right? And so they gave us 30 days. And then we went over to, I think it was a company called EPS. Uh, and then EPS promised us the world. Two months later, they shut us down and we're holding on to like 80 grand or something like that. Then we moved over to Cardworks and we, they promised us the world again, shut us down again. Then finally, through some mutual connections, we signed up on Evo International Payments. And they, you know, it was kind of like a, like almost like a fear thing every day. It was like, hey, you got your chargeback ratio went above a quarter of a percent. We're going to shut you down. It's like, guys, we can't work like this. Like out of 20,000 transactions, we had 100 chargebacks. We're, we're good, right? Like there's no risk here, okay? And obviously with the reserves and I think we had a 10% reserve when we first started and, you know, so, and they would never release the reserve and it was always fighting with them to release it because, you know, as a young business, we need that cash back to keep it reinvesting. And so uh, finally, um, you know, about it two years ago, we actually ended with uh, Maverick uh, payments 
uh, Maurice over there has been awesome, just guiding us through CBD processing, Delta A processing, paraphernalia processing, just everything, and really being kind of the pioneer in terms of building those bank relationships and just allowing, you know, companies like ourselves to just process normal payments. You know, we're not selling anything illegal. You know, it, it was kind of crazy. So that's why I call it the payment processing bloodbath massacre, you know, for three years, it was just wild. Uh, but surprisingly, we've been banking with Chase ever since we started. Right. And they've never had an issue with us. And, you know, I, every year when we make the Inc 500 list, I get a nice gift basket. And so they know what we do. And, you know, they, they have no issues. So it was kind of funny how this whole time it was all the processing companies who, you know, are shady anyways. Yeah. And the banks are, you know, the ones that actually have something to lose and they didn't care. So that was kind of the, uh, yeah, whole kind of world of like just being shut off and money being held and thinking we're going out of business and then finding a loophole and just, you know, honestly, I'm like a very like, if there's a roadblock, it's like over, under, side, breakthrough, I don't care. If there's no plan B, we got to figure this out. Yeah. Hey, that's being an entrepreneur right there. Um, cool. Love it, man. Yeah, definitely. You can see kind of the regulations loosening up over time and it'll keep clearly there's no stopping it as it kind of keeps going forward as we keep progressing. Um, in society, it's just the antiquated ways that industries, regulations, banking, finance, credit card processors operate. And it, it is yep. what it is at this point. But, um, you know, kudos to you and the, the Hemper team, and the hard team to, to jump past it. And, 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 and you guys are killing it. So um, this is this has been great. Um, we always end our uh, kind of podcast with kind of two questions. Um, so number one, what is uh, for the listeners out there and the kind of uh, emerging brand CPG business owners, what does one do from your perspective in history? What is one do uh, on a CPG yeah, side? One do, one do, and then we'll ask what is one don't? One do, I would say, is going back to my first scenario with the glass and trying to make stuff in the States. You know, I think there's something to be said about having a vision, but being so militant on it that it can put you out of business. In your early days, you need to remain as flexible as possible. Pivot five times, who cares, right? You're gonna figure it out, but if you stay on this one path and that one vision, and you can't hear other people's opinions or thoughts, it's not gonna go well for you. Yeah. And I'm sure you still are able to, or still think that of, you know, iterating when you need to, right? Like, especially in, in 2023, I mean, everything goes so fast. You like literally make a decision three months from now, it ain't working. Well, like, what is the point of, of, of doing that aspect? So highly like recommend water. that as well. Yeah. Be, be like water, right? Go everywhere. Definitely. Try everything. Um, and then what is one don't for the listeners? What is one don't? Uh, don't over purchase products don't tie up your cash in inventory yeah right i know everyone thinks that they've got a winner on their hands do five tests before you do five smaller runs you know piecemeal it talk to your vendors ask them for you know maybe a, a blanket ship schedule quarterly shipments you know don't lose your business because you throw all your money into inventory yeah Cash, cash is king. 
you got to turn that inventory four, five, six, seven times a year. Yeah, definitely agree. Cash, cash conversion cycle, understand it, map it out, um, keep it as tight as possible. And, and anything that's in your warehouse is just basically and, lost money. And one more do is have really good accounting people on day one. Like yourself. Yes. Is, uh, are you, do you like, did, were you the one that was doing the accounting when you started? Or was it like when you're founder? Uh, so I, I wasn't doing when we first started, we hired like a bookkeeper. Um, but what I'll do <clears throat> even today, even today, so I just had my fiscal year end was 331. I will go through every expense in every category and make sure everything is classified properly. Love it, man. Uh, once an accountant, always an accountant, right? So, um, yeah. but definitely I can tell the accounting and information systems as background, I guarantee helped like identifying and mapping out the, the, the workflow, the inventory systems and things like that. So, um, well, Brian, I really enjoyed the chat. Um, super cool product offering, how you built your business, the, the challenges you went through, everything from an accounting finance operational standpoint. So before we let you go, where can we find you and your team, your businesses? What, 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 are, you, what are you promoting right now? Just the listeners can check you out. Uh, so if you want to check out uh, the Hemper awesome products, that would be hemper.com. If you're in the cannabis industry and you're looking for a solutions partner, that would be horrorsupply.com. And if you want to reach out to me, uh, brian at hemper.co. Awesome. Brian, thanks again for your time. Again, episode 31 of the Month Ed Podcast. Uh, brian Gerber from Hemper and Hara. Take care, Brian. Thanks. Thanks, Brad.